Hello and welcome to another edition of the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and I am glad to have you with me once again. And if you were listening to our last episode with George McLeod, which we actually got some pretty nice feedback on, on what I call the geopolitics of mining, I was mentioning Barrick a lot because I had just listened to the Barrick conference call and I have decided we need to profile it. I listened to it again, editing it. You have no idea how much value that gives you That gives you uh, an edited conference call because it's actually quite a bit to go through on your own, especially Barrick, which has like, you know, five continents of, of gold projects. So I take about 45 minutes of content and I reduce it to 20 and there was all sorts of very, very interesting stuff going on. And it, you know, it kind of pairs really nicely with last episode because interestingly, a lot of what George McLeod was talking about, you sort of see or hear in this conference call in a very real practical way. And one of those things is that Canada, as CEO Mark Bristow says, is going to be playing an increasing part in Barrick's future, as he says. And he also talks about Pasqualama, and I don't know if you've heard of Pasqualama, but, you know, Pasqualama is this basically mountain of gold, from what I understand, uh, that's on the border of Argentina and Chile, and it was seen as a kind of monster project, but it kept running into serious difficulties, plus the changes in governments over there. Anyway... Mark Bristow has shown himself to be quite adept at dealing with these kind of governmental, for lack of a better word, crises. You know, he's got the charm offensive, and I think he knows how to speak their language. He's worked in Africa a long time. Sounds like he's getting Pergera back on track in PNG. That He also brings up that. So all to say the Lama of Pascua Lama sounds like they're starting to drill. I'm not sure if they've started or they're about to start. Uh, so check it out. It's in the conference call coming up. So that is big news because, again, Pascua Lama, yeah, when I started working as a northern miner again like 10 years ago, it was like, you know, it was just a really big deal, that project, and it's quite something to see it kind of get back in the spotlight a little bit. Bristow also talks about copper in the portfolio. He talks about Egypt and how they are now. I mean, we talked about this a couple of episodes ago, how Barrick is starting to explore in Egypt and they put something, what I called four Toronto houses, about $8 million into it. But it sounds interesting what they're up to there. And I think Bristow sees an opportunity there. You also hear about some excitement about Nevada, and they're starting to use electric trucks. So there is a ton of very topical information in this conference call. So I am excited to present that to you. I think we have a commodities guy coming on next week. I need to confirm. Trying to get Rory Johnston. We were talking. We're both kind of vacationing when I was messaging. So I'm going to try and get him on next week. Notice to you, Rory, if you're listening. And, uh, and, and yeah, other than that, uh, we look at the 10-year bond, it's at 1.258%, so basically holding steady. Uh, crypto is back. There's no denying that. Bitcoin tops $50,000 again, and you're seeing the same similar sort of dynamic that you saw in February and March, where everything just kind of 3 to 5 x So let's see if that continues there. I mean, it's just a uh, hold-on-to-your-seats kind of market. 
gold above $1,800, but not much more. So that's our landscape, uh, really the actions in crypto. But nevertheless, I mean, the U.S. markets continue to make new highs. So there is green on the screen and oil is at $66.29. So really, it's a nothing to write home about market, no news is good news kind of market is how I would characterize this. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at northernminer. Find us on Instagram at the Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have this great... Headline from Cecilia Jamazmi, Resource Nationalism Sweeps Top Mining Countries in Latin America. So again, on point, on theme here. And it says here, a move towards resource expropriation, tax and royalty increases, as well as demands for local participation in companies' ownership, all components of resource nationalism, continues to increase, with Latin America taking center stage. A new study shows, according to the latest report from risk consultancy V-Risk Maplecroft, there is a clear four-year trend in mineral-rich nations seeking greater control over the revenues generated from their natural resources, a trend that is expected to worsen over the next two years. And remember, George McLeod was basically saying, look at the budgets of a lot of these countries They've all been decimated by COVID, so they are on the hunt for money, and mining is the obvious target here. Continuing on, the consultancy identified 66 out of the 198 countries, or 33%, assessed by the Resource Nationalism Index, or RNI, that have tightened their grip on their mineral resources since 2017. Latin America is a jurisdiction where risks of expropriation and tax hikes have increased the most, the study says. Mexico stands out as being the nation where the risks have climbed the greatest, driven by Lopez Obrador's administration's nationalist agenda that wields community and environmental arguments as justification for greater state involvement in the extractive sector, V-Risk Maplecroft says. And I think this is a very important point. A lot of these governments are pretty smart about how they do it, and they'll use, you know, environmental or, you know, social license as ways of taking over your mine or of wrestling control of that mine a little bit into their hands. Mexico's situation is indicative of a wider general trend affecting miners and energy firms. South America's three largest economies, Brazil, Argentina, and Colombia, are also experiencing substantial negative shifts in the index. Again, George McLeod was mentioning Brazil. He said he thinks it's next. If you haven't heard that episode, go to the last episode. It's a good one. These countries, Brazil, Argentina, and Colombia, are also experiencing substantial negative shifts in the index, while the once-stable mining destinations of Chile and Peru are in the midst of political changes that threaten to alter the operating environment for the industry. So that's pretty much a summary of last episode, isn't it? And here we have a little bit more. Copper prices have soared to record highs this year, handing unions and the two largest producers of the metals, Chile and Peru, additional leverage. The price rally has also ratcheted up tensions in labor negotiations and put pressure on global supply of the red metal. And skipping to the quote from the report, it says, quote, while the traditional bastions of stability for Latin America's mining investors are not yet crumbling... 
they appear to be joining their regional peers on the path of greater resource nationalism. Only time will tell how far each one goes down this road. And finally, in Africa, motivations are much more diverse. The interventionism seen in Liberia and Mauritania is driven by structural governance shortcomings, not nationalist sentiment, Virisk Maplecroft points out. The line between resource nationalism and legitimate national interest isn't always easy to draw, and this can exacerbate tensions. I'll let you read the rest on northernminer.com. Uh, great reporting from Cecilia Jamasmi, and also from Cecilia Jamasmi, we have a drought in Chile, and this is going to force Antofagasta to cut copper guidance. So this is a whole other interesting issue, which is water shortage, drought, environmental issues. So Chilean miner Antofagasta says the water shortages in the South American nation, which has been hit by a decade-long drought exacerbated by climate change, has forced it to cut its copper production target for the year. The miner now expects to produce between 710,000 tons and 740,000 tons of copper this year, down from its previous forecast of 730 to 760,000 tons. So a small drawdown, but significant. The redesigning of a desalination plant at its flagship Los Palambres mine, slated to begin operation in the second half of 2022, could also be affected, the company said. Adding a delay would put 50,000 tons of copper production at risk. And we have a quote from Chief Executive Ivan Ariagada, and he said in a statement, quote, the weather in central Chile during the first half saw unprecedentedly dry conditions with almost no rainfall. We have now had 12 years of drought, and the precipitation in 2021 has so far been less than in 2019, which itself was one of the driest years on record. So this could become a real problem in Chile. So we are flagging that over here, thanks to Cecilia. And we are continuing on. And Volvo, this is by Valentina Ruiz Leotode, Volvo is using the world's first, quote, fossil-free steel. So this is something I have never heard of before. And if we turn to the article, it says here, the first fossil-free steel in the world has been delivered by Swedish steelmaker SSAB Oxaluzund to its first customer, Volvo Group. The product was manufactured in northern Sweden using the hybrid technology, which was developed by SSAB in partnership with iron ore miner LKAB and utility Vattenfall. The technology uses 100% fossil-free hydrogen instead of coal and coke. Volvo has said that this year it will start manufacturing the first concept vehicles and machines with steel from SSAB using hydrogen. Plans are for smaller scale serial production to start during 2022 and for a gradual escalation towards mass production to follow. The car maker and the steel maker will also work together in research and development to optimize the use of steel in Volvo's products with regard to weight and quality. Together, the two companies will develop a number of products of fossil-free steel with a goal of reaching serial production within a few years. And we have a quote 
from Volvo in a media statement, quote, newly made fossil-free steel from SSAB will be an important complement to the traditional and recycled steel used in Volvo's trucks, construction equipment, and other products. Fossil-free steel will be made by a completely new technology using fossil-free electricity and hydrogen. The result will be a much lower climate impact and a fossil-free value chain. The steel industry considers that the need for steel will grow significantly in the long term and that newly made fossil-free steel will be needed to meet this demand. So you see the market is demanding environmentally friendly metal and the market is delivering it. And we have a quote from Jan Malmstrom, LKAB president and CEO, who said in a statement, quote, this is a crucial milestone and an important step towards creating a completely fossil-free value chain from mine to finish steel. By industrializing this technology in the future and making the transition to the production of sponge iron on an industrial scale, we will enable the steel industry to make this transition. This is the greatest thing we can do together for the climate. So there you have it. The world is moving towards the standard. I think it was Robert Friedland who was one of the first people to say, we're going to be selling metal according to how environmentally it was produced. And we're starting to see stories pop up only months later. But this was in the air. I don't think Robert Friedland was the first to say this, but you never know. Continuing on, Linus, the Australian rare earth company, Linus gets extension to build waste plant in Malaysia. So they are building a waste plant in Malaysia, but it has been slowed down. Malaysia has provided rare earths producer Linus Corp with some breathing room for finding a permanent location for a low-level radioactive waste disposal facility for its processing operations on the country's east coast. The Australian miner, which fought hard to stay in Malaysia under certain conditions that needed to be fulfilled by September this year, said the licensing deadline for the permanent disposal facility has been extended by six months to March 2nd, 2022. Well, if the government's doing that, they obviously want Linus to stay. Continuing on, Linus said the extension recognized the constraints presented by ongoing COVID-19 restrictions in the Southeast Asian country, currently dealing with a third wave of the pandemic. So yeah, it probably sounds like this is COVID-related, these delays. The disposal of radioactive waste from the plant has been a contentious issue, and identifying a location for the PDF was part of the requirements set by the Malaysian government when renewing the company's license to operate. Now, I would think that'd be a huge challenge. I mean, nobody's going to want this near them, particularly if you own your property. Uh, are you going to want some big uh, permanent disposal facility of nuclear waste near you? I don't think so. Linus is presently processing rare earths at its $800 million Linus Advanced Material Plant in Kuantan at a reduced rate under a fifth license received in February last year. The miner revealed that activists seeking to overturn the operating license extension granted to the company in August 2019, the fourth such permit, have appealed against a high court of Malaysia ruling in favor of Linus. The company, which controls just over 10% of the global rare earths market, intends to fight the appeal. Okay, so activists are appealing a ruling in favor of Linus, and now it sounds like Linus is fighting this appeal process because it probably will delay everything. So interesting. I don't think anything's going to get in the way is sort of my prediction because I think there are, on a geopolitical level, I think everybody outside of China wants diversification from China on rare earths. So my sense is this is just going to happen. Uh, that's just my two cents here.
Uh, the drama, so the drama continues at Northern Dynasty, the mining soap opera known as Northern Dynasty Minerals. And this is by Henry Lazenby. And the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers have assigned a new review officer for the Pebble Appeal. And Northern Dynasty is appealing a negative record of decision for the Pebble Copper Gold Project in Alaska. And again, this has been going on for 20 years. It feels like it's been going on for 20 years on this podcast, but that's only been going on for two years as far as I know. And yeah, but it literally has been going on for 20 years. You can go back to, let's say, 2006 in the Northern Miner, just do a search and you're going to find stories about the Pebble Project. So, you know, give the Northern Dynasty guys credit of never say die, but it seems like a desperate attempt at this point. I mean, if we look here, the new review officer comes after the previous officer was promoted out of the position. So it's a bit of a shot in the dark, a Hail Mary to see if maybe a new review officer will come to a different conclusion. The new officer is expected to set a detailed timeline for the administrative appeal process, including scheduling a potential site visit and appeal conference in the weeks ahead. Northern Dynasty's U.S. subsidiary, the Pebble Limited Partnership, says it has been advised that the administrative appeal process for Pebble could take a year or more Given the complexity of the case, there must be so much paperwork on this thing. The administrative record contains 200,000 documents to date. The Pebble Partnership submitted a request for appeal of the federal permitting decision in January, and we have a quote from Ron Thiessen, Northern Dynasty president. Quote, we have been and continue to be very concerned about the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers' schedule and timeline for advancing our administrative appeal of the Pebble permitting decision, as we believe this does not accord with regulation. The new review officer has the power to help set the U.S. down the path of strategic metals independence, which could enable the U.S. to produce the copper, gold, and silver it needs for a successful green economy transition. They can also help ensure that these metals are mined using industry-leading technologies under some of the strictest environmental standards in the world, while helping Alaska realize its right to manage its own resources for the benefit of its population, end quote. Now, of course, this goes through, I think, one of the world's biggest fresh salmon fisheries, or is right beside it. So that has been an issue of contention to the point where Donald Trump Jr. was speaking out against this project. So you get a sense of the concern from the environmentalists and the never say die attitude from the company. I wonder when you can stop appealing. They must be getting pretty close to the end of the road. I mean, I, how many times can you appeal? And finally, another story by Henry Lazenby, uranium tops Morgan Stanley's commodity thermometer. Morgan Stanley has placed uranium at the very top of its metals and mining commodity thermometer. Uranium was assigned a, quote, most bullish thesis of 17 mined commodities under the bank's coverage. And we have a quote that was taken from a tweet of the report that says, quote, further price upside near term as commercial inventories are drawn down. Investment demand continues and mine supply remains below 2019 levels. Longer term growth continues to push prices higher. I mean, my only thing is we've been hearing this for, you know, near a decade if you go to our conference call that we had on Cameco, it sounds like a very oversupplied market. So it's not a question of if. We kind of know eventually uranium is going to go up, but eventually everything kind of goes cyclical, doesn't it? But it is a question of when. And that is investing in the market is a more a matter of timing than anything. As any uranium investor will tell you from the last 10 years, 
although they have had a last good year. I will give that. The gap between uranium spot and contract prices has narrowed for a third consecutive month, reaching $32.40 and $33.50. So this uranium price has gone nowhere, I dare say. And really all the rise in the stocks in the last year has been purely on speculation, maybe merited speculation. I I think we can call it merited speculation, but I mean, it's not based on current fundamentals, which as Cameco CEO himself has said, this is an oversupplied market. And he's very optimistic on the future too. But as it stands, I mean, and we see it in the price, the price doesn't lie. And with that, let's turn to metal prices. prices. I got an email from a loyal listener and they were saying, check out Iron Ore. And we don't often check Iron Ore out on this podcast because it's not on mining.com's metal prices. But I took a look at the chart. This is from Business Insider. And it, yeah, it did take quite a tumble from about $218 on July 15th, and now it's at $159.40. Again, down from 217 about a month ago. So interesting decline in iron ore. This listener said it is unique amongst the major mine metals for being sold as raw ore, equivalent in some ways to copper concentrate compared to all other metals like gold, silver, copper that are sold as a refined finished product. So It sounds like it's a pretty important metal that we are not talking about, so we may have to incorporate it. I'm not exactly sure if I'm going to go to Business Insider every week. Uh, Let's see. But I just wanted to flag that, that we are seeing a pretty big move in a very important metal, iron ore. Now, if we look at the 10-year bond, holding steady at 1.28%. This is up 0.06%, so not a huge move on the 10-year. And gold, and and we get these prices from mining.com slash markets, and gold on August 24th is trading at $1,804.94 per pound. That is $9 higher than last week. And silver is trading at $23.73 per ounce. That is 17 cents lower then last week, platinum is trading $2 lower to $1,021.51 per ounce. And palladium is also trading lower at $2,470 even. And that is $138 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.05 per pound. That's 23 cents lower. Aluminum is trading a penny lower at $1.17 per pound. Lead is trading a penny higher at $1.12 per pound. Nickel is trading at $8.42 per pound. That is $0.49 cents lower than last week. And tin is also trading lower at $15.28 per pound. That is $1.10 lower than last week. Cobalt is trading at $23.22 per pound. That is $0.53 cents lower than last week, and zinc is trading at $1.34 per pound. That is two cents lower. 
So metals take a bit of a break. There was an outlier with lead still going higher by a penny. Otherwise, except for gold, across the board, metals are lower. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have the Barracks Q2 conference call featuring CEO Mark Bristow. And I want to remind you, these are excerpts. So sometimes you might think, oh, it's strange why he's talking about one thing and then another. I tried to keep it fairly smooth, but you have to remember there are pieces, big chunks actually, that I was taking out just to get you what I would consider the most newsworthy items in the call because we don't have all day. So keep that in mind. I hope you enjoy it. It's a very interesting speech, and we'll see you on the other side. Thank you very much, and uh, good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Barrick's Q2 results presentation. Despite the short spell of value-creating consolidation preceding the pandemic, <clears throat> I feel <clears throat> our industry is still too fragmented and needs to lift its horizon and focus a little more on the future. We have been living on a rising gold price going back to the turn of the century with not much focus on replacing the ore bodies we mine with similar quality. As, of, as I have said many times before, having experienced the last gold price boom without creating any real value, the gold industry, and to be fair, many investors in the sector, still cannot resist the lure of instant gratification, which comes at the price of investment in the future and sustainable profitability as we witnessed from 2013 to 2015. Barrick, on the other hand, has a fundamentally contrarian position. Ours is a long-term strategy designed to manage the industry's best asset portfolio and project pipeline so that they will deliver the best returns to all our stakeholders over the longer term and far into the future. As I will show you in the course of this presentation, our major mines now all have reality-based 10-year plans currently being refined and the team's challenge is to look further out to 15 and even 20 years. At a time when ESG heads market scrutiny of the industry, Barrick has an environmental, social, and governance strategy evolved over many years and not freshly contrived to check compliance boxes. It's a central part of the business from managing biodiversity to board diversity. Our climate-specific strategy is grounded in climate science rather than wishful thinking with ambitious but realistic targets 
and measurable results which we report transparently and comprehensively. Protecting the health and safety of our employees is a central part of this strategy. And while lost time injuries decreased again in quarter two, this achievement was overshadowed by the fatality of a contractor's employee at our Hemlo mine in Canada after the quarter end. An investigation into this tragic accident is underway while in the meantime, we continue to support the family. On the environmental front, there were no class one incidents during the quarter. We're continuing to maximize our water reuse and recycling rates and are firmly on track to achieve our water efficiency target of at least 80% by the end of this year. In line with barracks flat structure and decentralized management, the group's climate change strategy is being implemented on the ground, with each site tailoring the strategy to achieve the optimal local outcome. We're continuously seeking new technological developments that can accelerate or enhance these plans. We have also continued the independent human rights assessments we started in quarter one with a review of the Kabali operation completed this quarter. The actions we took at the time of the merger two and a half years ago are clearly bearing fruit as evidenced by another sector leading cash return to shareholders of an effective 23 cents for the quarter made up of the base nine cent dividend and the second 250 million tranche of share, the shareholder approved return of capital. While we've created a strong foundation for the achievement of our vision of managing the best assets with the best people to achieve the best returns, Barrick's future very much depends on what we are doing now. In this regard, I'm very happy to say that on a group basis, we look set to replace the reserves depleted by mining this year with ounces of at least the same quality. We're expanding our presence in new countries within prospective gold fields, and our greenfields exploration programs are identifying exciting new discovery opportunities. It's also gratifying to note that our major capital projects have all made significant progress. Despite some significant headwinds, we delivered a credible set of operating results. An unprecedented mechanical failure at the gold strike roaster impacted the North American region, but Africa and the Middle East and LATAM America and Asia uh, Pacific both performed well and are trending to the higher end of their production guidance, emphatically illustrating the value of Barrick's global presence. As you will see, at quarter end, we had more than $5 billion in cash on the balance sheet, not, notwithstanding some significant cash outflows during the quarter. In addition to paying 
one of the industry's leading shareholder returns in the form of dividends and return of capital, the second quarter is also when the majority of our tax obligations are due and interest on our bonds are paid. In addition, we made royalty and tax prepayments to support some host countries' COVID campaigns. It's worth noting that our focus on the future, which I will touch on in more detail in the presentation, is not keeping us from rewarding our investors here and now. And it's what will allow us to keep rewarding them in the future, a strategy that I believe will differentiate us over time. We start our review of the operations in North America. Nevada Gold Mines hosted its first virtual tour during the quarter. In its short life, Nevada Gold Mines has achieved a great deal. The mines, as well as the management, have been successfully integrated into a barrack-style structure. And the company has also launched a series of programs to ensure its recognition as a valued partner to the state and the community. Nevada Gold Mines and Nevada's mining industry as a whole has cemented that partnership through establishing the mining education tax, an excise tax that will go directly to fund education in the state. And this is an example of true collaboration between industry, legislators from both sides, and the governor's office. Across the region, non-core assets within the North American portfolio have been brought to account on the back of the higher gold price. While elsewhere in the region, we are leading the industry in relooking at the way we manage closure sustainably, such as reprocessing tailings at Barrick's Golden Sunlight Closure property in Montana. Nevada is far from being a mature gold province, and there are plenty of opportunities for significant reserve additions, as well as new world-class discoveries. In the meantime, both the Gold Rush and Four Mile projects are making steady progress. Carlin had a challenging quarter. No sooner had the annual maintenance shutdown for both roasters been completed successfully than one of the gold strike roaster mills failed, reducing throughput by some 40% for that mill. It is pleasing to share with you that the team rose to the challenge by increasing throughput through the operating mill adjusting ore blends and prioritizing high-grade oxide underground ore at the Cortez Mill. Repairs on the Gold Strike Mill should be completed later in this quarter. This chart underlines the point I made earlier about Nevada being far from mature as a gold region. Exploration is delivering significant reserve additions, geological model refinements, and new conceptual targets, as I will touch on. At uh, Leagueville, resource drilling is returning particularly strong results, as you can see here. 
it has confirmed high-grade continuity and the potential for connecting adjacent high-grade intercepts, while to the east a significant intercept has expanded the mineralized footprint. North Level is on track to deliver a maiden resource by the end of this year. Turquoise Ridge is probably the Nevada site with the most upside, but at the same time, the complex, which includes Twin Creeks mines and processing facilities, came with many challenges. We've now improved the geology, updated the models, and produced a revised high confidence mine plan on that foundation. Plant upgrades and new investments in underground equipment and ventilation are expected to deliver an improved performance commencing in the second half of the year. In line with Barrick's clean energy strategy, Turquoise Ridge is currently trialing four 50-ton electric trucks. And as with all state-of-the-art technology, we are working through some teething challenges associated with ensuring the batteries are robust enough for underground working conditions. In Canada, Hemlo's reinvention as an underground operation was impeded by COVID travel restrictions, which have impacted the Australian contractors with whom Barrick has worked very successfully in Africa. As a result, the mine underperformed and is trending to the bottom of its guidance for 2021. The transformation of the underground continues, however, with mining from a new portal expected to start in this quarter. And in exploration, we are continuing to define potential resource additions which could extend the mine's life beyond 2030. Significant progress has already been made in delineating targets which are outside Hemlo's current mine plan, with recent drilling identifying the E-zone below the western side of the old open pit. Another point worth noting is that we are fortunate to have the support of our First Nation partners as we secure the future of Hemlo. Further afield, across the Canadian goldfields, we continue to hunt for new opportunities capable of passing our investment filters. And I personally believe Canada is going to be playing an increasing part in Barrick's future. At Donlin in Alaska, I am now beginning to be more comfortable that we are starting to get a better understanding of the fundamental characteristics of the ore bodies and a better spatial resolution where the metals and the ore types are. And this is what will de-risk de the mine plan and add value to the project. This key piece of work is critical to developing an improved and considered mine plan with which to make a sensible decision as we progress towards updating the 2011 feasibility study. As an aside, we have an interesting portfolio of study stage projects. This includes potential world-class projects like Donlin, 
Alturas, Norto Abierto, and Pascualama. While these are all large capital-intensive projects, we continue to way and de-risk the projects to allow us to make a sensible development decision or find other means to transfer the value to our shareholders. In the Latin America, Asia Pacific region, it exceeded its quarter two production target, led by Valadera, which posted a solid performance on the back of improved ore stacking and fresh ounces pulled from the recently commissioned phase six heap leach facility. Costs were also better than plan across the region. We're also looking at new opportunities in our nearby Lama project on the Argentinian side of Pascua Lama. Drilling in this district has already confirmed an extensive gold copper mineralized system in the stratigraphically important area between the Pascua Lama deposit and the Penelope Porphyry target near Valadera. We refer to this target, which is shown on this slide as Lama East. And this is part of a portfolio of identified and very prospective targets, which will be the focus of future work. And there's clearly a significant exploration upside in this district. In fact, we're planning as we come out of winter to be able to mobilize a total of around 12 drill rigs in this region. Across now, to Papua New Guinea, where the reopening of the Pogra mine awaits the finalization of various agreements. This follows a signing of a binding framework agreement with the government earlier in quarter two. The mine is still on care and maintenance, although we have started opening up access to the bottom of the pit and underground workings. We have also started to build up a leadership team in preparation for the commencement of reopening operations. While in parallel, the government is running the community and landowner consultation process. Our copper portfolio again made a significant contribution to Barrick's bottom line. At Lemoana, higher throughput and grade drove an increase in production. And this trend ex is expected to continue in the second half of the year. At Jabal Said, it also had a good quarter and is on track to achieve its annual guidance as well as more than replace depleted reserves. High-grade ore from newly identified feeder zones point to a material life of mine extension. Zaldivar is continuing to recover from the impact of Chile's COVID restrictions but significantly advanced its chloride leach project scheduled for completion in the first half of next year. We secured four exploration licenses covering over 2,900 square kilometers in Egypt. The license areas have been selected for their structural and geological similarities to the world-class Sukari deposit. When we merged Barrick and Rangold two and a half years ago. One of our objectives was to create a modern business 
with a flatter, leaner structure and a highly efficient executive oversight. This has enabled us to cut general and administration costs by more than 30% in absolute dollar terms, while at the same time increasing revenue. On any measure, our corporate costs are now substantially lower than our peer group. And one of our key fundamental goals at the time of the merger was the creation of real value for our shareholders through improved operational effectiveness and streamlining our business. Here on this slide, you can see how we've achieved these objectives across multiple metrics, from increased cash flow and returns to our shareholders to increased cash on hand and balance sheet strength. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, as I have often stressed, our strategy is a long-term one designed to deliver sustainable production and profitability at whatever conceivable goal price one can expect. As we have shared with you at the start of the year, we have a 10-year runway ahead of us, supported by mine and business plans developed at conservative $1,200 an ounce gold price assumption. Although we as a team have made good progress, there is still some work to be done to an unlock the full potential of Nevada, Pueblo Viejo, Valadera, and Pogra. And then there's the pipeline of already defined opportunities like Four Mile, Donlin, and the South American portfolio. After that, it's about investing in our future through our rapidly developing Greenfields initiatives, which I firmly believe will add significant value in due course. And while we aim to keep our feet firmly on the ground, we're certainly also keeping an eye on the big blue sky above us. So thank you for your attention and we'll be happy to take questions. You know the part that I thought was the most cryptic? Was this idea that the mining industry is too fragmented. Maybe it's obvious, maybe he's just saying we need more consolidation and that, you know, we're all too scattered. He didn't really elaborate deeply on exactly what he meant by that, and it could be taken a few different ways. Anyway, I hope you really enjoyed that. We are building a narrative here. We are building the case of what we think is going on in this unique industry. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory and share it with your friends. Hope you're having a wonderful summer. Until next week, take care. <laughs>